the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, this is Better Off, a podcast about the biggest problems we face today. People would say things like, that's not a virus. You don't have a vaccine. Uh, You're depending on persuading people to change their behavior. That's never going to happen. And the people innovating to create public health solutions. It's our job in public health to try to keep everybody oriented to the real goal, which is, or should be, to reduce disease, reduce suffering in people. I'm your host, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. In about a week, we're going to hit the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's becoming clearer and clearer that the pandemic will end, but not as quickly or as definitively as we had hoped. Public health and healthcare workers are burned out. Scientists are burned out. I'm burned out. Probably you're burned out. So today, we're bringing you some positivity. We're going to talk about guinea worm disease. And you may not have heard of it, but this parasite once affected millions of people and is now on the verge of eradication. And we're going to meet Dr. Donald Hopkins, the man who has made it his life's mission to work with communities to combat this disease. Today, we're better off with Donald Hopkins, guinea worm eradicator. Today, Donald Hopkins is renowned in the field of public health, and he has even lent his name to a scholarship that allows students from underrepresented groups an opportunity to study at Harvard Chan School. Hopkins credits his own educational experiences as the reason he became passionate about public health. I uh, wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember, long before first grade. But when I was in college, I got a scholarship to study in Europe. And during the year, uh, some colleagues and I went down to Istanbul, Greece, and Egypt. And it was in Egypt, in addition to looking at all the monuments, I noticed all of these people, adults and children, that had flies around their eyes and something going on with their eyes. I didn't know at that time what it was. I know now it was trachoma. But I just saw all these young people and and adults with uh, this, this disease. And that made me decide that when I got to medical school, I wanted to work especially on tropical diseases. In the 60s and 70s, Donald Hopkins helped lead the successful campaign to eradicate smallpox. In 1980, the same year that smallpox was eradicated, Hopkins realized that there was an opportunity to combat guinea worm disease, a non-fatal but devastating parasite that affected an estimated 3.5 million people, most of whom lived in rural Africa. One day, Hopkins was reading a magazine from the World Health Organization, and he learned about new initiatives aiming to provide clean drinking water to people around the world by 1990. But I realized they did not mention guinea worm disease at all. Unlike diarrheal diseases and some other things, cholera, typhoid, that they were talking about, which are transmitted by those other things being transmitted by contaminated drinking water, by dirty fingers, by contaminated food. Guinea worm disease was only transmitted by drinking water. And therefore, I realized if they provided safe drinking water to everybody, that would eradicate guinea worm disease altogether. And so I embarked with colleagues at CDC on a, an effort to convince these people or help them to understand this God-given opportunity to uh, you know, include among the things they were aiming to do, eradicating guinea worm disease. 
The guinea worm is a parasite, and it has a unique life cycle that allows it to get into human bodies. Just a heads up, the next minute or so will include some graphic details about guinea worm disease. People get infected by drinking contaminated water that contains these microscopic larvae inside of a, a small uh, water flea, so-called. No symptoms for a year. But then after a year, the person begins to experience pain at some point, usually on the lower legs or foot or ankle. By that time, the adult female worm is getting ready to emerge from the body. She creates a painful blister. People know that if they put that part of their body in water, cool water, the blister will rupture. And at that point, the worm ejects hundreds of thousands of microscopic larvae back into the water. And in the water, they are then eaten by these tiny water fleas. And people drinking water containing those infected water fleas become infected. Then, a year later, the blisters appear and the cycle begins again. The disease is rarely fatal, but it is extraordinarily painful. These worms, when they emerge, the female worm is about two to three feet long, the width of a thin strand of uh, spaghetti and uh, an ivory, ivory color. Most people have only one worm to emerge in a season, but some people can have dozens of worms to emerge. And these worms don't just come out. They emerge only a fraction of an inch usually per day. So this process normally can take up to one, two months or more. And in the meantime, it's very painful. Painful to the degree that people who have a worm coming out of their leg, for example, have trouble walking. Children can't walk to, to school. Farmers can't farm. Parents can't keep after their toddlers. It impacts not just people's health, but their agricultural productivity and education in places where where there are uh, are schools but it usually doesn't kill people people also do not become immune so in these so-called guinea worm areas people are subject to infection year after year after year and not just individuals this this thing is is seasonal and depending on where geographically one is the guinea worm season is either in the rainy season or the dry season. In the old days, we would have 30, 40, 60 or more percent of a village affected at the same time. And that period when the, the guinea worm season, so-called, often coincided with a critical period for planting or harvesting crops. And that's what had such tremendous impact on agriculture. So I, I would just ask you to just Imagine what it's like when you walk into a village with so many people of all ages lying around, unable to to move uh, without pain, just uh, suffering for, for long periods. It was a terrible disease, even though it didn't usually kill people. People not only had to cope with the pain of the disease itself, but if none of the adults in a household can work, their family could suffer poverty and malnutrition. Donald Hopkins was convinced that this disease merited an eradication campaign on the scale of the smallpox campaign that he just completed. But when he started trying to convince the global health community to take on guinea worm disease, 
he met a lot of resistance. Having worked in the smallpox program, we, we encountered a lot of skepticism at the beginning. I mean, people would say, you know, smallpox had just been declared eradicated, and that was a, a big deal. But people, so we come along talking about eradicating this parasite, and people would say things like, that's not a virus. You don't have a vaccine. Uh, you're depending on persuading people to change their behavior. That's never going to happen. We also were, were handicapped by a couple of other things. One was that unlike smallpox, which had an incubation period of two weeks, in guinea worm, as I've said, the time between a person became infected and when this parasite began to come out and the person knew they were infected, that period averaged about one year. And so, whereas in smallpox, somebody starts having this rash erupt and you can, you can ask them, what were you doing two weeks ago? Try to figure out where they became infected. And they could easily make that connection. Telling somebody that this worm coming out of the body now uh, is a result of something they did a year ago, uh, it's difficult for any human being to, to remember what they were doing a year ago and, and to, to make the association you know, because people didn't understand this parasite in the first place, to try to help them make the association between wherever they were drinking contaminated water a year ago and this thing coming out. That was just a bridge too far for people to try to to understand. But people living in areas with guinea worm disease did have their lived experience with the parasite. And, and in the area of southeastern Nigeria, for example, a, a physician I was working with there once said to me, he said, you know, in our language in this part of the country, we call this disease what's translated into English as the silent magistrate. And I said, why is that? He said, because people know that when this guinea worm season is approaching, that they are possibly going to be infected, but they don't know for sure whether they're going to be infected. And they don't know if they become infected, where this worm is going to come out. Because while most worms came out on the lower leg, they could come out of any place on the on the body whatsoever, nor would people know how many worms they were going to have. And so they were afraid to wonder what sentence the silent magistrate was going to, to meet out to them that year. Instead of approaching communities with messages of fear, Hopkins decided to offer knowledge. It was important to approach people in these rural communities with empathy and respect because they're human beings and you know whatever their circumstances they know people i mean and 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 so if you if anybody if you come in there with a high matey attitude that you know i'm the doctor or i'm the this or that and i'm here to tell you what to do that doesn't go over well in fact people will just turn you off completely and so you have to report to approach them with respect with the idea that you know that they understand their community very well. You also know that they don't want to suffer from this skinny worm disease. And so what you're trying to do is help to show them what they can do to not continue suffering from this disease. And if you approach it that way, then you have an opportunity to help them understand about the disease. We found that the, the most effective way to helping people make the association between drinking contaminated water a year ago and suffering from this disease now was to 
take them down to the pond or wherever they're getting their drinking water from, scoop up some water out of that pond where they're taking their drinking water from, filter that water through a fine cloth, and then backwash the debris that accumulates on that cloth that you strain the, their water through, backwash that into a jar of clear water with a, a clear jar or glass, and let them see the little things, that they're little things that are swimming around in that water they're drinking. And that helps people to make the connection that, oh, you folks who are coming to help us are actually showing us how we're getting this, this, this disease. And that was a, a powerful uh, teaching tool. The other, another uh, powerful thing was, was them for them to begin to hear testimonials from neighbors in a neighboring village or other places who have listened to these health people the year before, had also had, used to have a lot of guinea worm disease and are now no longer suffering or not suffering as much from the disease. That also was very, uh, a very powerful uh, tool. The guinea worm eradication program enacted all sorts of low-tech, highly effective interventions. Health education, teaching people to filter their water, using larvicide to kill guinea worm without harming fish. But guinea worm disease had been ignored for so long because it's a disease that largely affects people in rural areas who have little political capital in their respective nations. To enact major countrywide change, Hopkins had to get the attention of policymakers. In 1986, Hopkins' work on guinea worm caught the attention of former President Jimmy Carter. The Carter Center, a nonprofit founded by the former president, partnered with the CDC to lead the campaign against guinea worm disease. I shall never forget that when when we went to President Carter and announced that the Carter Center was going to begin assisting the government of Ghana to work against guinea worm disease, and there was this big splash, President Carter was there. One of the first letters that was written into the newspaper in the capital city was someone wrote to say that they were very happy that this was going to start in rural areas, unlike many other big programs announced in the capital, because, he said, the people in Accra, the capital, are washing their cars with water that is cleaner than what we have to drink here. And I've, I've, I've never forgotten that. And so there was a, a disconnect between what was, was possible by the way of helping people's lives and, and what people were, were, still, uh, were still suffering from. And so among the ways we, we got at that was to, as I like to say, use data to make the right people uncomfortable. When the guinea worm eradication program started, there was a lack of data around the disease. So Hopkins started counting cases country by country and village by village and reported those numbers to ministers of public health. This strategy eventually turned once reluctant policymakers into Hopkins allies. Now, there was the shaming aspect in the beginning. But after that, countries began putting in place these various combinations of interventions you began to see, particularly in the beginning, rapid reductions in the numbers of cases. That unleashed energy at all levels. Pride at the Ministry uh, of Health, uh, pride in, 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 the, uh, in the peripheral health levels, and among the, the village-based health workers that we then helped the ministries to train. And, and this was a lesson from the smallpox program also, whereas in smallpox, you can measure and see the difference every two weeks. 
in game worm, it was a year. But what we did was measure the monthly case counts throughout the year. And then in the second year, when we have, year, have nationwide surveillance, each month, because the incubation period is about is averaging 12 months, each month, what's happening in this country this year reflects what that same country did the same month a year before. And so the first time we sent a graph like that by mail, long before email was possible, to the Minister of Health in Ghana, we immediately got a response back that the minister wanted a dozen copies of that color graph because he wanted to pass it out at the next cabinet meeting to let people see what his ministry uh, was doing and how they were, 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 were reducing cases of guinea worm disease. And so that, that, that evidence of progress just got all kinds of people excited. I think that's a, a really interesting thing that as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about the current pandemic and the challenges that we're facing in, in two ways. One, to convince people to enact behavioral change and two, to convince leaders that actions are necessary in order to bring case counts down, bring vaccination counts up. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about you know, the current crisis that we're in and what lessons we can pull from the Guinea Worm Eradication Project that apply to where we are now. I, I think not just of Guinea Worm Eradication, but also of the, the HIV AIDS epidemic in, in the beginning. Because in the beginning of HIV AIDS, uh, people were waiting for a vaccine. And it was that Woe is us. We can't do anything until we get a vaccine or a treatment. And I, I think of the many talented people that the world lost in the beginning uh, because we didn't have proper preventive measures. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't even have a, a, a treatment then. But in the beginning, very early on, we understood that disease was sexually transmitted and that using condoms, for example, was an effective way of preventing transmission of, of that disease. Right now, with this COVID-19 pandemic, before we got a vaccine, we already knew washing your hands, social distancing, wearing a mask were non-technical. I'm, I'm sorry, 21st century, but this is a low-tech thing. Those were effective, imperfect, but effective ways of, of helping to reduce the transmission of this disease. I get unhappy even, even now when I, I don't see enough reporting about the proportion of people in individual communities, cities, states that are using or wearing masks, for example. Vaccines are great, and, and thank God we have uh, now a vaccine for COVID-19, and we have these very effective treatments for HIV-AIDS, but we should not not use other less uh, sexy, less fancy, uh, less technical interventions in the meantime to help save people. 
I, I think that that makes a ton of sense. I mean, when when you're talking about guinea worm eradication, the, a lot of it is not expensive. It's not, it doesn't require technology. I, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on sort of the way that, um, you know, politicians and leadership understand the tools of public health and whether, you know, we often turn to those high tech solutions when a low tech solution will be as or more effective. I put that on us in public health. It's not the politicians' jobs, usually. I mean, unless they've gotten the masters in public health, it's not your job to understand public health. It's our job in public health to help them understand public health and to help steer them away from the the, the mindset that always fix on fix on something shiny and fancy and so-called uh, modern and and, and try to keep everybody oriented to the real goal, which is or should be to reduce disease, reduce suffering in people, whatever it takes that's legal to do that. And so if, if that's the goal that you have firmly in mind, then it becomes much easier for people to understand, well, you know, it's nice. Let's bring up these vaccines and treatments whenever we get them. But in the meantime, Let's save these people now, because when you're dealing with something that's potentially fatal, you can't buy back those people's lives. I mean, you, you cannot recover those people's lives. And so whatever you can do in the meantime, while you're waiting for the cavalry to come, uh, if it ever comes, do what you can while you can now. You know, as you're talking about your passion for this 40-year-long project of, of guinea worm eradication, I mean, there have to have been times when things were not going well, you were not seeing the success that you wanted to see. And I'm wondering, you know, in those moments, what kept you going on this project and committed to this project um, when when things were not looking so bright? Well, thank you for asking that, because the the thing that's kept me going is the fact that I had the experience early on of the successful smallpox eradication program. And I, I like to say that uh, as a result of smallpox eradication, I was immunized against pessimism. It's okay to be skeptical, but I was immunized against pessimism because I remember Hearing early on people saying, you're never going to eradicate smallpox, smallpox can't be eradicated, this, that, or the other reason, and I saw smallpox eradicated. So thank God in the beginning, and there were many people who, no vaccine, you don't have a treatment, this thing has a one-year incubation period, you're only dependent on persuading people to change the behavior. Moreover, these are poor people out in rural villages, blah, 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 blah. I'm immunized uh, against that because of smallpox eradication program. You, you want to have uh, perseverance because that's what it takes. One last thing that Hopkins is passionate about, public health education. He's lent his name to the Donald Hopkins Predoctoral Scholars Program, which allows accepted students to study at Harvard Chan School and is focused on providing access and opportunity to students from underrepresented groups. He thinks programs like this are vital, as is diversifying the field of public health. Hopkins himself came from circumstances where a higher degree wasn't guaranteed. I was one of 10 children. My father was a carpenter. My mother cleaned other people's houses and she worked as a seamstress. 
we didn't have a, a lot of money. We weren't poor, uh, but we, we didn't have a lot of money. And so I, I benefited at several points uh, in, 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 in college and in medical school from the generosity of other people. And, and I mean, the, the, the financial generosity as well as their encouragement of me. But the, the idea of scholarships to help people who would not otherwise be able to afford it be able to take advantage of educational opportunities is near and dear to my heart because I often wonder when I'm out in, in African villages and, and see the little kids running around in, in the dust. Every, every human being is born with a brain that's wired differently from every other brain on the planet. It's important for folks as they approach problems of, of health and, and consider societal public health problems to have all of those perspectives because people's experiences are different. The more variety you can have, the greater the chance that somebody is going to have a, a perspective that's going to be either in combination with somebody else's perspective or singularly is going to figure out an effective solution to a problem that would then benefit everybody. On February 25th, Donald Hopkins delivered the inaugural Donald Hopkins Scholars Lecture at Harvard Chan School, covering his 40-year quest to eradicate guinea worm disease. If you want to hear the full lecture or learn more about Dr. Hopkins, you can visit hsph.me slash betteroffhopkins. That's hsph.me slash betteroffhopkins. Subscribe to Better Off in your favorite podcast app to get episodes every other Wednesday. If you like the show so far, rate and review us and tell your friends about the podcast, too. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at HarvardChanSPH. We're better off with our team. Chief Communications Officer Todd Datz, Senior Digital Designer Ben Wallace, Production Assistant Brian Lee. Our editor this episode was Mary Dew. I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert, host and producer of Better Off, a podcast of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.